I'm Catherine Budig. And I'm Kate Fagan. And this is Free Cookies, a humorous podcast filled with thoughtful conversations and offering delicious takeaways. And today. And today, I would just like to point out the last time we recorded this episode, I tried to do the intro without looking at the bio line of the Instagram page of Free Cookies Podcast, and I can't do it. She thinks it's a thoughtful conversation filled with humorous takeaways. takeaways. And I'm like, it's not that. It's a podcast and we are in it and it is ours and you will be ours. And today. And today. And today I am so excited because we are hosting the amazing Madeline Miller, author of The Song of Achilles and Circe, two of my absolute favorite novels of all time. And that is not a hyperbolic statement whatsoever. No, it's not. And for those of you who are like, why would I read a book? Which there won't be many of you, but if you are that person, Cersei is going to be on HBO Max. Well, do you so, think people are really like, why would I read a book, like period, in a sentence? Not a book about Greek mythology, but like a book, just a book. There's, a, there's a, book? a lot of people who like aren't into reading, but they're probably is, not into the season then. They're not into the season. <laughs> and that was probably not my most effective transition that I've ever offered on this Wait, podcast. I'm, I'm sorry, I cut you off though. I feel like you're going somewhere with that. No, no, that was the end of my thought. Oh. It's just letting people know that like, if you're, if you haven't read Cersei, you can soon watch Cersei and that's pretty cool. That is cool. But it's going to be on HBO Max. HBO Max, which uh, this is not a podcast about TV. This is a podcast about reading. But People HBO read Max, the books or listen to HBO the books. HBO Max is going to be HBO's new subscription service. Anyway, but carry on. I also think that... You know, the thing about Madeline that's so amazing is I know some people, when you say the Iliad or the Odyssey or the Aeneid, people are like, oh, good, classic snore. Or Title <laughs> IX. When you say Title IX, people, like, their eyes They say, over. what? They're like, why would we read a book about that? Um, Madeline just does, she is such a gift to take the classics into the modern arena and bring the, the magic of these stories to life. And also, especially with Cersei, she reminds me a lot, if anyone has read Sue Monk Kidd's newest book, The Book of Longings. The main character is the, the supposed wife of Jesus. Her name is Anna. And Anna reminds me so much of Circe and that they're both these women in men's world who have this unbelievable voice and nothing's handed to them. And they have this perseverance of finding the prayer in their heart and, and making it come to life. So it's, it's just, you don't have to like... Greek mythology to enjoy her writing no. whatsoever. And speaking of bringing the ancient world to the modern arena. So another fun thing about Madeline is that she used to direct Shakespeare plays for high schoolers. For high schoolers. So I'm And that is like here. the zeitgeist of Catherine Budig. Like a writer who takes <laughs> myth and makes it cool. And directs Shakespeare for high schoolers. I mean, that is basically like your best friend. I know, Madeline, I, I will start stalking you. I'm sorry. Um, so I thought what it would be fun is I actually have the authentic original copies. Manuscript of Romeo and Juliet in her hands. by Shakespeare in his handwriting in my lap um, that I, when I used to be an actress back in the day and I did summer Shakespeare at McCarter Theater in Princeton, New Jersey, and I have my original scripts in my lap right now. So I thought it would be fun to hand, Kate is not prepared. She doesn't even know what plays I'm holding. She, she just learned who Shakespeare was like five minutes ago. Um, and she is going to read Hamlet. <laughs> She's going to do Billy a few, Madison, a few classics. I thought we would start simple. Kate, we will start with, with Romeo and Juliet. Okay. But do I have your notes for it? Um, it's not like I say, you know, cry here or exit here. Or but enunciate this word let's properly. Let's start with just that first stanza for Juliet. Okay. <clears throat> oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name. Or if thou wilt not be but sworn, my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. <laughs> Is that you say that? Close. A few okay. more. More? No, 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 no. That's good. You want to play Romeo? We're going to move on. Oh, okay. We're going to move on. You can put Romeo and Juliet down. Thank you. Do bravo, you bravo. Producer Lindsay is really into this. Next, we are going to go to Much Ado About Nothing, and you will be reading the role of Beatrice. Is this the movie script? You will be playing. Who plays Beatrice? She's your favorite actress. Kate Blanchett. No. 
the other one? She's English. Emma Thompson. Yes. Guys, Emma Thompson has got it going on. Kate she does. The hot. What fire Thompson. is in mine ears? Can this be true? Stand I condemned for pride and scorn so much? Contempt farewell and maiden pride adieu. No glory lives behind the back of such. And Benedict, love on, I will requite thee, taming my wild heart to thy loving hand. If thou dost love, my kindness shall incite thee to bind our loves up in a holy band. For others say thou dost deserve, and I believe it better than reportingly. Hey! Thanks, guys. Wow. You guys actually seem to think I was good. Okay. And no, no, no. I think we're good. No, we're going to wrap think it we're up. Good. We're going to wrap it up with The Tempest. The Tempest. And Kate will be reading the character of Caliban. And Caliban. Sounds like Taliban. Caliban. Not. Well, I mean. Caliban is going to um, crawl onto the stage, most likely. So I need you to get gritty for this one. Okay. Just the that rest- last bit, the very bottom. Enter Caliban. Cal- oh, and. Enter Caliban. All right, come on, baby. Come on. Give it. Give Who it to him. Who is Caliban? He seems wicked. He's, he's wicked. Is he wicked? Yeah, he's wicked. What's his voice like? Let me see. Okay. <laughs> oh, wicked is one. Okay. As wicked do as e'er my... No, that's too much. It's <laughs> too much. <laughs> as wicked do as e'er my mother brushed with raven's feather from unwholesome fen, drop on you both. A southwest blow on you and blister you all o'er. Over. Yeah, man. Blister you well, all or. That's that's the new way of saying and, F you, baby. And blister you all over. Oh, what'd you say? Blister you all or, okay? You take that and you it, it blistered it. it cool. You blistered it. All right. Yeah, I don't know, guys. I think that that was extraordinary. Talented. I think we, I think William. A star in the making. Is Billy, um, Billy Shakespeare. Billy Shakespeare is not rolling in his grave. I think he is. Well, what I would trying like trying to write a new character for Kate Fagan. <laughs> what I would like to know is how our guest felt about my performance. It's true. Well, since we are BFF now, I'll just drop her a little text and yes. and we'll we'll go chat for a bit. All right. Or Here. maybe we'll just bring her on. Here's Madeline. Madeline Miller taught and tutored Latin, Greek, and Shakespeare to high school students for over 15 years. She is also the author of The Song of Achilles, which was her first novel and won the 2012 Orange Prize for Fiction and was a New York Times bestseller. And then her follow-up, Circe, was an instant number one New York Times bestseller. We are joined with Madeline Miller, and I, short of doing the whole fangirl thing, I I don't think I can explain how excited I am because you have written two of my favorite books of all time. Um, And we will definitely be discussing those. But Madeline, what I really want to ask you first off before we get into your novels, you you teach the classics Greek Shakespeare to high school students and direct... Shakespeare plays? Am, am I correct in asking yeah, that? Yeah, can you give us the lowdown on like what and you're up to? Can I audition for your plays? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me and for those very, very kind words. Um, I am very thrilled to be here. So, uh, yes, I, I'm not teaching currently because I have two young kids and I'm also trying to write full time and do some amount of, although not anymore, book touring, but I, I was doing some some traveling um, and doing some talks. And so unfortunately, teaching in high school is completely incompatible with traveling or an irregular <laughs> travel schedule. So something had to go and sadly it was teaching. Um, but I, I do hope to to come back to it one day because I absolutely loved it. And the years I spent in the classroom and the years I spent directing Shakespeare plays were so incredibly creatively fruitful. They were so inspiring. And honestly, I think I learned everything I know about storytelling from directing plays. They Ooh. definitely go. Oh, yep. Kate, yeah. Kate I mean, I w- we'll, we'll probably jump all over the place there, but since you, <laughs> since you mentioned that right there, I did, I, I had read it, I think a Q and a that you did where you were talking about teaching high schoolers in, in theater and how, interesting it was to watch those kids be able to explore parts of their emotion that might not Mm. be allowed to be expressed just in the everyday high school culture. So, and you said it was incredibly fruitful. Can you elaborate on like what you learned from that process? Sure. Um, Well, it was, I mean, it was, it was such a privilege, first of all, to get to do that kind of work 
where, you know, I felt like I was through these roles in Shakespeare, you know, I was getting to witness students sort of try something new, grow in new ways. But I, I think part of what I really learned from a storytelling or a craft perspective um, is that plays really fail if they are not tight. Um, and we used to sometimes backstage post things that said faster, faster, louder, louder, um, <laughs> which, you know, just to remind actors right before they went on. Um, and that when you when you pause on the stage, you know, a five second pause is basically like might as well be an hour in terms of how it feels for the audience. So you have to really use those pauses. You have to keep your pacing up. Um, and so I feel like just working through that pacing and that sort of feeling of, of each scene has to have an arc, but it also has to have this forward momentum with the whole play. You know, each scene kind of felt like a chapter. And so just practicing that over and over and over again, working with, you know, plays that are incredibly well-written and, you know, amazingly brilliantly characterized already and just kind of me getting to go into those and, and play with them and try and execute them um, was amazing practice. It felt like working out my storytelling every time I was doing it, although that was not the intention at the time, but I, looking back on it, I think that's what I was doing. Yeah. You're like, I guess I'll teach this. It'll help me with my writing. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is amazing how timeless Shakespeare is and how there's so many iterations as a director of what, how, what direction you want to share the story if you want a modern twist on Romeo and Juliet or if you want to do it in the traditional structure of Elizabethan era. And, and I, I see that in your writing as well as the, with Circe especially. I mean, you have the classics in this timeless Greek mythology, but you bring it into this beautiful modern language where the reader can feel like they're going on this magical ride that might be representative of, you know, a, a woman trying to find herself in society today at the same time. And that actually did not lead into my question. I'm, I'm just thinking a lot right now. But my question was, um, <laughs> did you ever act? Did you ever perform Shakespeare yourself or did you just direct it? I am, I have, this is going to sound strange, but I have, I have terrible stage fright whenever really? I'm speaking someone else's words. If I'm going up to do a presentation, I'm okay with that. But mm. um, I've taken a few, you know, kind of acting courses where you had to do a scene or two for the group and I have never been more terrified in my life. But you just Even put out that was, monologue on your Instagram. I think it was the, the monologue, was it Trulius and Cressida that you put up on your Instagram? Uh, yes. I, yes. I was so excited that you did that. And I've been meaning to do that myself, but I feel like I have a little bit of stage fight about that too, because it's been so long <laughs> since I've performed Shakespeare, <laughs> but you inspired me. So you oh, might well, not have as much you. stage fright as you think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I felt like I was just saying it. I wasn't, you know, fully enacting it. Sure. So I was giving it a little bit, but I wasn't doing the full. So that was how I managed to <laughs> um, avoid panicking about it. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, because I kind of well, the, I'll let you ask your question, Catherine. But I, I think that the one thing that I would never want to do, if we're excluding like really treacherous things, is to stand up on a stage and pretend I'm a comedian. Like <laughs> if I had to do like a 15 minute comedy routine, that would be the pinnacle of fear for me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how you, a lot of people probably. I don't think you're alone. Yeah. On so, that one. Well, you meet some people who are like, whatever. I mean, if people don't laugh, they don't laugh. And I'm like, if they don't laugh, it's it's not okay. <laughs> your soul will be yeah. Yes, <laughs> that is soul crushing. But so you're full time writing now, and and we read that it took ten years to write the song of Achilles. And I also read somewhere that after five years, you completely scratched your manuscript. Is that? Do we have our facts right? True. That is absolutely true. That's that is true. Terrifying, Madeline. That's <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> was you it know, because I, the ten years, like Trojan War, was, was ten years, and you wanted yeah, that timeline? Yeah, like, I, was that a coincidence? <laughs> exactly. It was really. I was like cosplaying that for in my writing. Yes. Um, no, I. It, it was not planned. Uh, the ten year thing. It. It was. Yeah. I, I can now sort of talk about it more lightly, but at the time, it was really a terrible, terrible feeling because it was this feeling of. I know that this is wrong. I don't know how to fix it. Maybe I can't fix it. And I just have to sit with this thing I've poured myself into for five years and realize that maybe I, I, I can't do it. Um, and so at the moment, I decided to take a writing course over the summer. So there's um, this wonderful writing course called the New York State Summer Writers Institute. 
which is held at Skidmore. And they have a lot of wonderful um, teachers. They have a lot of wonderful writers who come in and give talks. So I was really excited. I had never done anything like that before. I had no really formal writing training. I had kind of, um, Minjin Lee talks about giving herself a master's um, in creative writing sort of on the side. And I, I don't know if I can claim to have a master's, but I, I definitely, you know, all my writing stuff came from reading books on writing written by writers. I never took any classes. And so this was the first time I had really tried to take a class in writing. And I was so upset about this whole failed novel, what I saw as a failed novel, that I didn't even take a fiction course. I took nonfiction. And I was able, through sort of going back to nonfiction and taking a break and finding that, you know, I could put two sentences together, maybe. Um, in another context, I sort of got the courage to go back to Song of Achilles. And and the truth was, is I, you know, I, I had this sort of very strange relationship to Song of Achilles, because on one hand, I had this career that I absolutely loved. I loved teaching, and I loved directing Shakespeare plays. And yet, I had this part of me that just couldn't let this go just could not let Patroclus' story go. And um, even when I was at my, you know, at my most depressed hour about it, I still couldn't just fully give up. When you went back to it after the Skidmore class, by the way, I lived in Saratoga Springs for a number of years, so I know Skidmore well. Did you, oh, yeah, it's, it's such a beautiful area. When you went, yeah. when you went back to the manuscript, were you were you renovating it or did you just say that that happened and I wrote that and I'm going to keep that in my mind and I'm going to start from word one again? So it was this it was this long period of self delusion. Um, so what happened was that actually while I was at the New York State Summer Writers Institute, the first line of Song of Achilles as it now stands popped into my brain one day. And so I ran home back to my dorm room and I typed that out and I basically typed the first chapter kind of as it almost as it ended up being. Um, and then I was sort of afraid and I put it away again <laughs> and um, took a little break from it. And then when I came back to it, I kept thinking, well, this, this first chapter is, is strong and I'll just have to make a few adjustments to the second chapter and then probably everything else will be fine. Mm -hmm. um, and so then I changed the second chapter and then I thought, well, now I just, there are a few things that don't quite link up with the third chapter, but after that I won't have to change anymore. And doing that all the way through the manuscript, I eventually rewrote every word. Um, and that's what needed to happen. But I think if I had said like, you have to rewrite every word, I, that just would have been too much for my brain to comprehend. So I sort of lied to myself along the way <laughs> that, you know, there was going to come some point where I wouldn't have to rewrite everything. So did you, when you finally released the song of Achilles, did you have any foresight or Inkling. expectations or inklings about the massive level of success and accolades this book would garner? Uh, absolutely not. Not at all. Um, I was, when I had sent out my query letters to agents, um, I had sent out something around 80 letters and I had gotten 78, like form, like immediate form rejections. This is not interesting. You know, when, when people respond <laughs> Yeah, so I was really like, wow, the, the mark, no one is interested in this. Um, <laughs> and I was very fortunate that one of the agents who did get back to me was one of my top, top choices. And she has just been amazing. This is Julie Bear at the book group. Um, she is so brilliant. She is such a true lover of stories. So she was then able to, to match me up with a wonderful, wonderful editor. Um, but given my experience with that whole process, I was definitely not thinking. And, and I had some, some really good friends who, when I told them what the subject of the novel was, their sort of eyes glazed over. <laughs> so I was, I was not, I, I was sort of thinking like, well, at least I will know that I did this story all the justice. I was capable of doing it. And if only my mom buys, you know, if my mom buys 50 copies and that's it, I guess at least it's out there. <laughs> you, you mentioned in your, your previous answer that you ran home from whatever class you were, you know, you were in at the Writers Institute and sat down and, and wrote the first chapter. And it in, in things I've read, it sounds like 
running and walk, taking walks have like played a part mm-hmm. in your rhythms and, and routine for, for how you, how you write. Um, what, and, and for, for listeners who probably haven't read this piece, you, you know, you, you, Madeline, you can share just that you wrote your first manuscript. You would like go for a run mm-hmm. and then come home and sit down and write. <laughs> yep. And then you kind of peeled back and now you kind of incorporate, you know, w- however that looks for you. Can you explain to us kind of the, what those rhythms of writing are for you now? Sure. Um, well, I definitely need a workout at some point in the middle of my writing day because I, I start with a certain amount of energy and then I really, I, I, I will start to hit a wall um, with whatever I'm working on, either in the micro level, dealing with sentences or the macro level, sort of not knowing what a character is doing, feeling like I can't quite get the rhythm of a conversation. Um, and so I'll go for a walk or I'll go for a run or I'll go, um, actually I destroyed my, um, I destroyed my knee in high school doing that running on that manuscript. So I don't <laughs> run very much anymore. Mostly I'm on the elliptical or I'm walking or, um, something else like that. But I, uh, I really love that sort of being out in nature, being outside, moving my body, moving my brain. Um, And I don't try and stress out too much about it. I kind of just let my brain chew over it. I'm not sort of trying to solve it by the end of the walk, but oftentimes something will have been solved by the end of the walk or, or the workout. And I, I then go back and I do some more work and I kind of write down all the stuff that I thought of. Um, and sometimes I'll even take another walk again later. So for me, I think, I think there are sort of two key things. There's the motion and I'm sure the endorphins don't, don't hurt. Um, but there's also being outside in nature. And I, I do find it incredibly peaceful to, um, look at trees and just, you know, hear the birds that there's something about that, that kind of relaxes me at a very base level. And that relaxation helps my brain sort of stop seizing up. So when it comes to inspiration for your topics, your characters, who you pick to to build your novel around, and it's funny because we were just talking with our producer, Lindsay, before we started talking to you about when she was young, her mother used to read books to her and her sister that were way over their head, and (laughs) they were not digesting what was happening, but... Uh, her mother would give her a piece of paper and and tell them, I want you to draw something while I'm reading this chapter to you. And you know, whatever Mm. that comes up for you. Um, And she said to, to this day, and I mean, she's very smart by the way, but to this day, (laughs) you know, she still has this um, voracious appetite for reading and capability to retain what she reads. And I know Kate wants to chime in here because she has oh, a question yeah. about your childhood. I did a lot of research. I read a lot of, but but it, so, it sounds like your mom read you the Iliad at age five. Is yeah, that like true? how do you think that impacted you? Did obviously, you nightmares. Obviously, you went on to write books based on like a lot of. Turns out it impacted her a lot. Yes, it turns out there was a big impact. But, um, I I absolutely loved it. My mom is now ended up going back and getting her master's and becoming a kindergarten teacher. So teaching just that age and she, which she loves, but she was also horrified after she did that because she was like, I can't believe I was reading you that stuff. But, um, was she reading from Homer or was she reading like the kid version of the Iliad? Is there a kid? She was reading from Homer, but it was, but she was editing as she went. So I think she was, she was doing the old kind of scanning ahead you know, maybe I, I'll leave out the spurting blood. Right. And, the and then Hector, brain. ooh, dot, 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 dot. He went <laughs> dot, away. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> <laughs> so, and a lot of it, you know, was going over my head. Absolutely. Um, but I remember sort of that excitement yeah. and the, I mean, what I was responding to, I think, was just the pulse of the story, this epic, intense story that's about grown-ups being angry and making mistakes and you know Mm. people like really intense unsolvable disagreements that something about that just went right into my brain and was so exciting the gods I was really interested in the gods and um not so much the monsters in the beginning but the gods in particular and there aren't as many monsters in the Iliad there they more come out in in the Odyssey so I, I don't really know, but my mom actually just, I was just talking about this with her the other day. And she said, you know, one of the sections I read, and I don't really know why, I guess she was skipping around or she was, I, I'm, she said, one of the first sections I read was actually 
the the sort of the part where Patroclus puts on Achilles's armor and mm-hmm. and goes out. And I was like, wow! So that really did. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> Thanks, on some mom. Level. <laughs> yeah, thank you, mom. <laughs> wow. So okay. So obviously, that's where you got your inspiration for the song of Achilles. And but but why Circe? It, it, she. I'm so glad you picked her. But it's such an interesting choice because. Uh, the Odyssey is one of my favorite poems of all time. And mm-hmm. Rosie Fingered Dawn, you know, same thing. Those lines get stuck in your mm-hmm. head throughout the years. And, it, you know, to me, not that I didn't remember her, obviously, that turning Odysseus's men into pigs was really fantastic. Um, but the fact that you fleshed out this entire life and talked about the Titans and and you gave us the backstory of Scylla and Chartibus and and, you know, gave them all hearts and blood under their skin like you really fleshed it out and sorry I love your book obviously but (laughs) no thank you but but why why Cersei how did you how did you pick her well in a way it was sort of um similar to my what drew me to Song of Achilles because I I think in the case of of both her and Song of Achilles there was this feeling of anger and frustration that that was really at at the core of it and with Song of Achilles it, it was about sort of what I felt like was the closeting of Achilles and Patroclus that had been happening over over the centuries, even though the idea of them as lovers was well established in the ancient world as a possible interpretation. And so I, I had this feeling where I can remember, you know, reading the Iliad, being so excited to read the Iliad on my own, and there was nothing in any of the commentaries that I was looking at. There was nothing. There was no hint of anybody was mentioning this whole thing. And I was like, I feel like there's something missing, like psychologically. What's this? I don't know. The story is not really making sense. What's up with this? Why is Achilles so angry? Anyway, so I, I was sort of my brain. And at some point I realized when I was in college and continued studying, like, oh, wait a minute. I I feel like I get what's missing here. Um, that there's this whole thing that people aren't aren't talking about that's just this unspoken you know, possible interpretation that for me made the whole story make sense suddenly. Mm. Um, and so it, it was sort of my, my pushing back against that. And then with Cersei, it was this feeling of getting this female character dangled in front of me that was so interesting. Um, and Cersei was so interesting to me for a lot of reasons when I was younger um, and for the same reasons now, which is that, you know, she's a powerful woman. She's a woman who wields power, who has independence, which is very unusual um, for women in myth, particularly, you know, women who are not the huge goddesses, Hera, Athena, um, and she isn't, she doesn't have an unhappy ending to her story. So women who wield power almost always end up, and, and women who don't wield power almost always end up tragic. You know, their stories are are stories of them being punished or having to give up that power or, you know, something like that. But that doesn't happen. She sort of is allowed to remain. The, go- the gods are clearly a little nervous of her, and she's allowed to keep living on her island even with that, you know, this extra power. And so part of me was 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 frustrated by what short shrift she gets in the Odyssey. That even though she's so intriguing, she's just this cameo figure. And not only that, but she's clearly meant to represent sort of male anxiety about female power, right? Odysseus shows up, she gets the jump on his men, and then he goes, of course, to confront her and he tames her. And um, and then, you know, she falls to her knees and begs for mercy and invites him into her bed. And, you know, so she goes from being this character who's wielding power, power to like literally on her knees in front of the hero. And I just remember the first time reading that being so angry mm-hmm. and feeling like, you know, why why does this have to happen to this interesting female character? The the sort of the groveling level of it was so frustrating. Um, and then we never even find out very much about her. She just sort of floats yeah. through magically helping Odysseus. Um, no one ever asks her, why is she turning men into pigs? <laughs> we don't really get, which seems kind of important. Um <laughs> And or or how she's managing to live this very unusual life. You know, I wanted to know more about her witchcraft because that's totally different from her divinity. It's this thing that um, drew me in because it's something that she does and she creates as opposed to something that she was born 
you know, to be. So she, she, you know, was born a goddess, but she makes herself into a witch. So that mm. sort of aspect of, of witchcraft coming out of knowledge and skill and dedication, as opposed to, you know, the papau, you know, Shazam power of the gods was really um, interesting to me too. So I, I think I just had this feeling of like, get off stage, Odysseus. I'd like to talk to Cersei for a minute. Yes. And, 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 oh, sorry, sorry to cut you off. Keep going. No, no, no. Uh, I, I just, uh, that's a part of your book that I loved so much that Odysseus was actually such a tiny part of Cersei. When, if you flip it, Cersei was just a tiny part of the Odyssey. And between reading your book and also, I'm, I'm sure you at some point has probably seen or read Margaret Atwood's The Penelopad, Penelope yes. Pad. I don't know if I'm saying it right. But it really shook me to my core as someone who loves the Odyssey and has studied it. You know, it wasn't until I read that where I was like, oh my God, Odysseus is awful. <laughs> and it wasn't something that any of my professors <laughs> talked about. I'm like, why yeah. was this not discussed? I mean, this is yeah. truly monstrous. And I just loved it. And then you, you know, took him and he wasn't this big part, but you just stripped him down and showed, you know, the shadow side of him. And, and so I was just, and it's, I think you already answered that, but I did have that question about, you know, was your intention was that kind of that feminist empowerment of Cersei, like taking her stand in a man's world and, and being the main player versus Odysseus? Exactly, exactly. You know, for me, this was all about Cersei's story and her whole story. You know, I wanted the novel to be the story of her growing up and coming into her power and trying to find her way in this world that was, you know, really hostile towards her. And so it was it was important for me that, Odysseus occupied the same amount of space in her life that she occupies in his, i.e. not very much. Um, and that the rest of her life is, you know, just as significant, if not more so. Um, and she has all these other incidents, you know, that that happen, many of which are, are directly from the mythology. Um, but I was kind of pulling and putting them together and sewing them together. Um, but yeah, the, in, in terms of the, the portrait of Odysseus, you know, in some ways, I think starting with the Iliad kind of put me on this path because Odysseus is much is, I would say, openly villainous in many sections of the Iliad. Um, and one of the things that's interesting is that because the Odyssey is so popular and that's sort of the, the piece of Greek mythology that I think we we all know the best, we have a little bit of a, of a sort of skewed version of Odysseus, that the ancients were actually much more negative towards Odysseus mm. in most portraits of him. Um, he's often the villain. And that was because he's he's the liar and the manipulator and the politician and sort of so so they see him oftentimes many portraits of him from the ancient world see him as as morally bankrupt um sorry yeah i'm just so excited do you have any references for people who would want to read more about this villainous version of odysseus that sure yeah absolutely my wife just wants to know what she can read to read read next tell our listeners please I think people will want this yes. information. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, I mean, book 10 of the Iliad, for sure. Um, that's where he goes on a night raid and um, they, he and Diomedes kill a suppliant um, and kill a bunch of unarmed, unarmed men, which, you know, yes, that's how you win a war, but they're unarmed and asleep. Right. Um, but it's also the sort of behavior that you can't imagine Achilles or Ajax you know, it's 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 clearly sort of from this dishonorable um, place, but it is very pragmatic, and that's kind of what I love about Odysseus is that is how his pragmatism and his and his dishonor are kind of wrapped up. Um, and at the same time, you know, when you look at him versus Achilles, okay, Achilles is more honorable, but on the other hand, he dragged out this war for, <laughs> you know, for that he glory. could have theoretically <laughs> ended for a long time. So I think they make wonderful foils to each other. But um, so the Iliad for sure, I I mean, I think the, the marquee example of this um, is Philoctetes by Sophocles. It's one of my favorite of the Greek tragedies. And actually, it isn't even that tragic. It, it has... A, a sort of happy ending, um, which is nice, but it's about this old warrior who is a companion of Hercules, whose name is Philoctetes. And he initially sets off 
to go join the Trojan War along with all the other kings and princes and captains. And he and Odysseus are traveling together. And along the way, they stop, both their armies stop on this island. And Philetes gets bitten by this horrible magical water snake. that, And it causes this stinking, festering wound in his leg. And Odysseus takes one look at Philoctetes sort of screaming in agony and stinking and the pus coming out of his wound. He's like, we're leaving him. And he gets, you know, everyone else and leaves Philoctetes alone on the island of Lemnos for the entire length of the war. And in the last year of the war, it finally comes out that Troy won't fall unless Hercules's bow fights on the side of the Greeks. Well, Philoctetes has Hercules's bow on the island. So Odysseus has to go back and get him. Um, Right, exactly. And it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful play about sort of three generations. Philoctetes representing the older generation. Odysseus is kind of corrupt middle age. And then Achilles' son goes too. And this is not Achilles' son in my, in my version. This is sort of a, a much more idealistic, um, sympathetic version of Achilles' son, Pyrrhus. So he's not the, the sociopath that he is in, <laughs> in Song of Achilles. Um, I, was, I was taking my lead from Virgil, not from Sophocles with that. And uh, anyway, it's a wonderful, wonderful play, but you really get to see some good villainous Odysseus mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you. There, there's something like extra special about either a a book or a play that takes a historical moment or person that normally would make our eyes glaze over, like you mentioned earlier, and reinvents it in a way that really excites people. Like I'm thinking now both about your work and then also Hamilton, you know, where all of a sudden now you've got a generation of, of kids who care about the history of that time period and now want to explore and opens up even more doors within it. And I, and I feel like a lot of people would say the same things about both your books, taking these subject matters that just rejuvenate, rejuvenates how we feel about them. Have you, like, do you get that sense when you talk to people about like what, you know, what your books have done in terms of like sparking their interest in that kind of like seeing history in a different way than they did before? I mean, that, Whenever I hear that from people, it means so much to me because I think, you know, there's always a part of me that is still a Latin teacher and a Greek teacher. And I love the idea of bringing these stories to a new generation um, of sort of most importantly, I, I think that as a teacher, I often saw students who had kind of two reactions to the stories. One is these stories are boring. Mm-hmm. Um but another is that these stories are are not for me. They're only for a certain type of person or a certain group of people. They're you know they're they're elite, and I I really could not disagree with that more. And Homer in particular was coming out of you know oral tradition. These are stories that grandparents were telling their grandchildren that were being passed on and passed on. They're stories that bards were actively working on, watching their audiences respond to them. And so so these are, you know, they belonged to everybody in the ancient world. And I think they should belong to everybody today. Um, And what was always really fun for me as a teacher was to have students come in thinking, oh, this is going to be boring. And then realize, oh, my gosh, you know, not only is that, first of all, there's, you know, bestiality and necrophilia and mm. incest, and, yeah. you know, Yay. all over this, right? Um, but it's like a bad YouTube all, trip. <laughs> right. right. Um, but second of all, the, that how psychologically powerful and deep these stories still are, that they're, that they're very fresh stories about sort of, you know, even though cultural things have changed, they're dealing with very timeless human experiences. Um, you know, in the Iliad, Achilles has made this decision and the Iliad is kind of the story. He, he's made the decision to die young and be famous forever. And the Iliad is kind of the story of him having to live with that decision. Yeah. Um, and, you know, asking students, well, what would you do? would you die young and be famous forever or would you live a long and happy life and be okay with no one ever knowing your name? And, and then if you had made the Achilles choice, what would that mean? And, and so sort of talking through imagining yourself into these stories, um, it's always wonderful to see because I feel like students immediately get it and they say, yes, of course. Now I see, you know, this is actually, I thought that this was 
3000 years distant from me, but it's right here. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you, I just was thinking while, while you were saying that, I, I don't know if you're a sports fan, but right now ESPN is airing the last dance about Michael Jordan. And yeah. if you read a lot about Michael Jordan, you know that he had so many, he has so many similarities to Achilles in that he could never, he, ne- he never wanted to be inducted into the hall of fame because he thought that meant that he was past and he never thought he could grow old because he thought he would always be this like great, the great athlete specimen. And so I could even, yeah. you know, I can even see like a lesson with kids now being like, look at the similarities between Michael Jordan and Achilles. And so there's, there are so many of those lessons, but I did want just to transition quickly, not that far, but you, you, you know, all of these ancient worlds, you know, that you write about, some of them are no longer tangible to us, but then there are certain ones where you can go and, and be present mm-hmm. in those places. And and I think often of this trip I, I took to Nuremberg, because I'm very interested in, in World mm-hmm. War II and, and standing in the places where so much of that history happened. And sometimes those moments can disappoint, but other times you can be really filled with some sort of sense of history and story. And I know yeah. you've been to some of these places like like, Troy, I mean, I've read, right, that you have, yeah. like, what, what were those experiences like for you when you stand in places where you fe- can feel that history? It's really, for, for me, it's unlike anything else. I mean, Troy was amazing. And it's not even the most exciting archaeological site in Turkey. In fact, I, I would say, I, I would say it's not even in the top 10. Um, there's some absolutely amazing, amazing sites all over Turkey, but there's something about standing there and looking out and being able to see the ocean, which was even closer back then and look at these towers and, and the stones and what's left of them. And also knowing how much is still left underground that hasn't even been excavated yet. And just standing at this, you know, at the center of this incredibly rich city um, that has so many layers, not just the Troy layer, but, you know, layers before that going back to even earlier, 3000 BCE was, was the beginning and, and just standing among, among memories and the history of so many human lives is just, it's very powerful. Um, and I felt the same way at Crete. I really seeing, getting to, to walk around what's left of, of the palace at Nassos was really amazing. And, and there were so many, there were so many places. Um, I love the city of Aphrodisias, which was a, also in Turkey, which was um, known for its art. And so there's some really wonderful still kind of, they, they have a great museum, but there were a lot of craftspeople who, who worked there and um, sculptors. And so there's just a lot more art that's around. It's really beautiful, really ornate. Um, and you're right. Sometimes it can disappoint and, and occasionally that happens, but I feel like most of the time there's just this amazing sense of here I am standing, I'm looking out at this landscape mm-hmm. and, you know, this is what they would have seen. Yeah. And speaking of that inspiration, can we expect a, a future novel centered around another mythological character, perhaps? Hopefully. Hopefully. Um, hopefully. <laughs> uh, I, I have a couple of things that I'm working on. So in the very short term, I'm working on a Pandora story. Oh, excellent. Um, so that's, it's only a short story, but I, she's a character I really have enjoyed. And I think speaking of, of sort of the feminist aspects of Cersei, you know, her story is very much an Eve story. It's sort of a woman gets blamed for everything because she's thinking too much. Um, you know, she's too curious and so therefore she causes all these problems. And I, I, I just, I find that story very interesting. Um, I am also would love, love, love to write back to the Aeneid, which is the other great sort of ancient epic love of my life. Uh, that's Virgil, Virgil's great sort of fan fiction to Homer. Um, and fan fiction, I, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really is. <laughs> um, and I, I also think that um, I would love to tackle Shakespeare. I, that is sort of the next novel. I, I think the, the Aeneid is going to be down the line. I never know with these things because they, they ebb and flow. But I, I was working on um, The Tempest at the same time a little bit as I was working on Cersei. So I'm, I'm thinking about The Tempest as well. Uh, Prospero is one of the best. His closing monologue is so beautiful. 
Maybe you can do that yeah. one for Instagram. Maybe I'll do that for Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll get yes, a big starry please. robe and everything. <laughs> you must tag me. Yeah. <laughs> um, hey, Madeline, before we get to, I know Catherine has a couple like rapid oh, fire ones, but um, yeah. I read that your Latin teacher, maybe perhaps in high school, used to oh. say the classics will keep you humble. I think, I think he said that for a couple of different reasons, or at least I, I took them for, for a couple of different reasons. Um, one of the things that he has later said sort of since then is he said that the people who succeed in classics have the highest tolerance for failure. Um, I, I don't know about, I think that that actually applies to a lot of disciplines, not just classics. Um, I might say the same thing about writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I might, I might reframe failure a little bit in this idea of someone who has the highest tolerance for, um, for not having it finished yet yeah. for sort of being on the journey as opposed to being at the destination. Um, and I think both classics and writing and really any art and maybe even really any discipline, um, are always, you know, you can always do better. There's always more to learn. There's always more to see. There's always a way you can grow as a student or as a creator. Um, and, and with classics, we are looking through this like pinhole at the ancient world that there's so much that hasn't survived. I mean, primarily we have the words of aristocratic men. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a few things outside of that. Obviously we have some graffiti, we have Sappho, but you know, basically we are looking at such a small segment of society. Um, and there's so many question marks and so much, you know, so much work that has been lost. I mean, the Iliad and the Odyssey were not the only ancient epics from the Greek world, but they're the ones that have survived. And we know of all these others, all these other poets, all these other um, plays, all these other stories that have just been lost. So I think that humility of knowing that even if you were perfect, you are still just perfect on the pinhole um, is, is incredibly humbling. But I think it's also a good thing because it inspires you to, to keep learning and keep growing and, um, keep coming back to this literature and challenging yourself and challenging your, your expectations, which is all the same thing that you need for, for writing, I think, because you always have to be asking yourself, am I going deep enough? Have I thought about this enough? Is this character fully formed? Um, how can I tell this story better? Yeah. Well, okay. I have some questions that won't be humbling. Um, they're just <laughs> just fun author questions. They might you. be humbling. They, they might be humbling. We'll know. find out in a minute. Um, <laughs> but uh, just fun questions. What was the last book you read? Um, the uh, last book I read. Oh gosh, what was it? Um, well, I have not. Quite Humble question number one. Yet. Oh God, did I read a book recently? <laughs> <laughs> I know. So I have this thing that whenever anyone asks me what I'm reading, my mind goes completely me blank. Me too. <laughs> me too. That's a horrible feeling. Okay, we'll move on to something easier. Um, favorite book as a child? Favorite, okay, that one's easy. Watership Down. Mm. Okay. Um, book, this one's fun. Book that you have, quote, air quotes, fake read. You know, like that book, like you want to be the person who said he's read it, but you really haven't Pretty read Pretty much it. every good, every like... <laughs> old book like that Warren falls Peace, into like, that oh, Pride yeah. and Prejudice I'm like that was great oh that's my favorite <laughs> yeah that's oh good that's a really good question um <laughs> I think I I mean I normally try to talk to it I because there's mm-hmm. so much that I have not read um I I really have an embarrassment I I don't pretend I've read them but okay. I have really like an embarrassing <laughs> ignorance about the Russian authors yeah like I, I I have to I read Anna Karenina and mm. that might be it. Did you though? Or are you just oh. saying that you did? <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> but I have, I have not lied about that. Okay. I am honest about my complete, you know, ignorance in that area. Okay. <laughs> um, favorite book of all time. Oh my gosh. That's really, that is basically impossible, but I'm going to say top three. I'm going I'm to say the Aeneid. Okay. Awesome. Yes. Awesome. Um, the Iliad or the Odyssey? The Iliad. Achilles okay. or Patroclus? Patroclus. Oh, you say it right. Damn it. Um, Diana or <laughs> Artemis? Oh. Mm. This, mm. this is my patron goddess, by the way. That's why she's in here. Yeah, I think I got to go Artemis. Yes. yes. Titans or Olympians? <laughs> um, I would have said Olympians before, but now I say Titans. Yes. And <laughs> chocolate chip cookie or oatmeal raisin? 
This is personal to us, Madeline, so get it right. Can I I say oatmeal chocolate chip? Oh, yes. You can and you would be politician. That's a very Odysseus answer of you. (laughs) Oatmeal chocolate chip. Awesome. That's it. That's the, the end of the pressure round. That's Ten, it. Awesome. Five stars. Well, I've now remembered what, what book I'm about to finish, which is Girl, Woman, Other, which is so good. And I Ooh, just love okay. it. Girl, Women, Other. It just got shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction. Um, it's so good. Amazing. Well, thank well, you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Madeline, this means the world to us, to you, for you coming on the pod and talking with us. Thank you so much. And we will follow you. And if I do my, my Tempest monologue I will tag you you'll be tagged I want it sadly you will be tagged and I'm sorry (laughs) I can't wait thank you okay take care thank you so much for having me Bye. bye and that is the what do they say in Shakespeare and I bid you all adieu curtain call the end is nigh over the river and through the woods. <laughs> All my charms are now o'erthrown. <laughs> I don't know why I have to have an accent. Um, Madeline Miller's awesome. We love her. Please go check out her books. Circe is now available in paperback from Little Brown. Mm-hmm. And, and you can get that anywhere books are sold. You can support our local indie bookseller, which is Blue Bis- Blue 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 Sickle. Blue Sickle. Sickle Pops. Blue Sickle Pops. It's No, it's Blue Bicycle Books in Charleston, South Carolina. If you're into such things as books, you can follow <laughs> The Inky Phoenix, my wife's book club on Instagram. That is The Inky Phoenix. You can follow us at Free Cookies Podcast. You can email us at freecookiespodcast at gmail.com. We are produced by Lindsay Collins of FNB Radio. And you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And thank God for Katie, Aaron, M. You have taken away that really gnarly review that was the last one that everyone saw. Everyone was looking at it all the time. The little peasly little star. Everybody's always looking at our reviews. So Katie, Aaron, M. Thank you for your five star review. (laughs) Will you read it? I mean, God. So glad they're back. Okay, that's good. That's good. That's good. All right, thanks guys. Thanks for listening. Stick around to the end of the show. This is where the good stuff happens. Adieu, adieu, potting is such sweet sorrow. Peace. Peace.